Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we uh, are going to, uh, over the next several weeks, begin looking at four of parables that are in Mark chapter 4. Most of you are familiar with parables or stories of Jesus. A parable, really to kind of simplify it, is a earthly story with a spiritual meaning. That's kind of the simplest way to describe what a parable is. Uh, Stories that Jesus told that were object lessons, you could almost say. They were almost um, the creating a visual. If I said, for example, uh, do not think of a pink elephant. Now, I I really do not want you to think of a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? You visualize, you see it, right? That's the way God has made our mind work. So when he began to talk in parables and to begin to tell stories, uh, those stories help to visualize sometimes abstract concepts. You know, has anybody ever, you can read instructions, and then if you're like me, you just say, can you just show me? Can you just draw some stick figures and show me how this, and you're like, oh, I get it now. Because in reading, uh, you know, 20 items on a list, but if you just show me, or draw me a little graphic or something, uh, that will help me. Well, Jesus didn't have the benefit of uh, PowerPoints or Keynote or whatever, the visuals or graphics. I guess, you know, he could have done something up in the heavens, but that wouldn't have been compatible with what he was about. But he created stories to communicate truths of God. Now, one of the things about parables being that they are earthly stories or common stories or object lessons that to illustrate a spiritual truth, one of the things as you read or study these parables that we'll note as we move along is the, there, there's, there's a dual teaching in them. Their pri- primary message is Jesus is teaching and communicating about the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the spiritual rule of God that is present. There's a present aspect of it. And then there's a future aspect. Sometimes we'll say it's an already, not yet. There's already a future, present rule and reign of Jesus. When we pray, when we uh, uh, agree together in prayer for one another, or we are, we are doing that based upon the understanding that Jesus is alive. We read that scripture earlier from Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about how Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father. Well, he's not limited there, but it's just a, a, a picture that the Bible gives us of Jesus' present authority, his rulership. And so it's based upon his present rulership and authority that we can function in, some, in a limited way in activity of the kingdom of God. When we pray, we're asking Jesus to take authority over a situation. That's not just wishful thinking, but we're actually connecting with something of the rulership and the kingdom of God that is both present and now. It's here and now, but it's limited. Certainly, there is clear teaching that the Bible gives us that Jesus will one day physically, literally return back. And there is a future understanding of his uh, kingdom authority and rule that will be visible upon the earth. No man knows the day or the hour. Regardless of what paperback book comes out this year, remember when 
somebody wrote about, I don't know what year it was because it always changes. I mean, there's been so many, uh, and they come out and say, it's going to happen on this day. So don't, don't waste your money. I'm already getting my Y3K book ready, you know, because the Y2K book made so much money and nothing happened. I thought I'd get a jump start on my grand- grandchildren can publish a Y3K scare book and kind of anticipate whenever that, some of you don't remember. You remember Y2K? Remember? I know some of you still have some of the survival food in your basement that you bought. Uh, oh, please. All right. Well, anyway, seeing I digress and I lose my train of thought. That's always dangerous when you get to get old, right? Um, but Jesus is presently ruling and reigning, but we also look forward to his future coming. Remember when he ascended up to heaven in Acts chapter 1 and the angel uh, you know, one of the angels was there uh, when Jesus bodily, physically uh, went and returned to heaven after being resurrected. And the angel told those disciples, said, why do you stare up into heaven? Don't you know that, and notice the language, this same Jesus, not some cult figure that claims to be Jesus. No, this same Jesus, that same body you watch go up, that same physical body with nail scars in his hand and side, will one day, physically one day, return back. So the Bible's clear about the second coming. So when we talk about parables, the story of Jesus, there certainly is that theme that we need to pay attention to, but there's also an application of how we can understand and picture the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's part of the working of the kingdom of God. So we come to Mark chapter 4. We will have four of these stories in Mark chapter 4. In the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's four Gospels, but the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's 39 parables total. Some Matthew uh, tells, some uh, Mark tells, some Luke tells, some they all tell the same. There's 39 total, but out of those 39... Mark, in his book, picks nine. Uh, Because remember, Mark is a little bit of a shorter. He's trying to move the storyline of Jesus a little faster and a little quicker. And so he picks and chooses some areas that uh, fit into kind of moving that storyline. Remember, Peter really is behind the gospel of Mark. Mark was a protege of the apostle Peter. Peter was was the the main first disciple uh, among the twelve, the spokesman. And so everything that we read in the Gospel of Mark, Mark wasn't an eyewitness, but Peter was. And so we read almost kind of Peter's, uh, I don't want to quite say dictation, but that, that's the source of where Mark is getting his information. All right, everybody with me? Everybody good? Look in Mark chapter 4 in the first two verses. And then in a moment, we're going to uh, look, we'll read together verses 3 to, through 10. In Mark chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it reads, again... He, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. There we see those crowds. We've seen those crowds building and gathering. Uh, Earlier in chapter 3, we saw how Jesus chose 12 disciples or apostles out of that crowd to be those who would be his team, to come alongside of him, but the crowds are still following. There's healings, there's miracles, there's uh, tremendous things that are happening, so crowds and the word is growing and growing and one of the things that's growing and growing is the opposition because the religious folks the pharisees mainly or scribes 
uh, which is a part of the Pharisee group, they're always kind of off in the sides. They're always looking for ways. And they've already, as we saw in chapter 3, they've already determined that they need to seek a way to kill Jesus. Okay? So these crowds are gathering, and Jesus uh, is teaching beside the sea. And notice what happens, that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the shore on the land. I could just imagine that uh, Jesus had to borrow somebody's boat and kind of push it out a little bit because the crowds were just so clamoring uh, that, that he couldn't even begin to address them. Now, also, the water, see, the first ministry uh, we see was a sound guy or gal because water is a natural amplification. So there's another benefit of being out in the water is your voice is amplified when it bounces off the water, so it's carried to hear for the crowd to hear the teaching of Jesus. So see, sound ministry is biblical, Right? And you all appreciate that? Your patron saint is that guy with the boat. There you go. And so here they are. They, Jesus is teaching them. And notice verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables or these stories. And we'll read what he says in just a moment here. So with that, let's, uh, you can remain seated. But let's move on to verse 3. And I'm just going to read verse 3 through 10. It'll be on the screen. Hopefully you brought your Bibles to follow along. But I'm going to read it from the screen, so in case uh, uh, that way we can uh, read it in the same uh, version, the English Standard Version, that'll be on the screen. We're going to pray, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit and pray that God's Word will speak to our hearts this morning. All right, so let's look at verse 3, beginning at verse 3, and we'll read down to verse 10. Jesus says, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it, the seed, withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was done, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we pray that today that you would uh, instruct us in your word today, bring life through the words of Christ today as we open the scriptures. Lord, we pray that your word, we would be conformed to your word, convicted by your word today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As I said, Jesus created this visual picture in parables to describe or explain the kingdom of God. And remember a parable, an earthly story with a spiritual truth. Real quick, remember I said that the parables have dual meanings. And one of the primary meanings is Jesus is teaching about 
the kingdom of God. And so just to get that kind of just in context, what does this mean about the kingdom of God? Well, in this parable, we have a farmer probably, and I just imagine maybe when Jesus is teaching, he looked off and, and saw maybe somebody out in a field casting seed. And, somebody, and then he just, it just it, of course, in Jesus' inspired way, he said, look, see the farmer? See the guy sowing the seed? The kingdom of God is like that. And of course, everybody turned their head, and he began to use that to describe the activity of the kingdom of God. In real short, the kingdom of God, like a seed, is being sown by the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's this analogy. Regardless of Satan's opposition, persecution, um, try, uh, the hardening of human hearts to prevent them from receiving the word, the activity and the work of the kingdom of God is still going on. It may seem slow at times. It may not see as it may seem like uh, the rats are winning the rat race. But nevertheless, the work of the kingdom the work of the Spirit is still moving forward, okay? It's not deterred. There is still fruit bearing, and there's that picture of lives that are being changed, transformed by the gospel seed, to, use, to stay uh, with, our, with our picture here. The kingdom of God is active and working, and Jesus said, it's on track to fulfill the purposes of my Father. But there's also another aspect that Jesus teaches us in this parable, in this story, is that this story of Jesus gives us insight, not into just, well, the activity of the kingdom, the work of the Spirit, but related to that is how does an individual receive the Word of God? And by doing that, he chooses this story of, the farmer, the sower, casting seed, and gives us some pictures of four different types of soils or dirt or ground as an illustration of how the seed uh, or how the ground affects the reception of the seed. Okay, So verse 14 gives us, as Jesus goes on, and uh, we read up through verse 10, but from verse 11 down to verse 20, Jesus explains the meaning of this story to his disciples because those and maybe some others with them wanted to understand what are you talking about? Is this a teaching on agriculture? I mean, is this a social gospel where we're to go out and make our own crops? I mean, is that what this is all about? No. They said, give us some explanation. What, explain these parables. And Jesus does that. Uh, just to, again, capture the picture here, remember verse 14, Jesus explains by saying, the sower sows what? The word, okay? So the sower, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit, the work of God, the work of the Spirit, regardless of whether that's doing something like I'm doing now and preaching, teaching, whether it's something in written form, it's a, a track or it's Whatever, the Spirit of God is using seed, and the seed is the Word, the Word of God that is being sown, that is the gospel, the the message of the good news that is 
being proclaimed and being taught. That's what the seed is, the gospel of grace. And so Jesus says some of this seed that is planted, and we'll look at these various examples in just a moment, produces fruit or some of it doesn't produce fruit. The problem, remember the seed is the word, the gospel of grace. The problem isn't with the seed. The problem is the ground, the dirt. That's where the problem is. The problem isn't that the gospel needs some kind of massaging to make it more palatable and more relevant and more understandable and more accommodating to our culture. We can't have this archaic, old, ancient message. It won't fit into the the very uh, liberal-minded and very progressive-minded of the 21st century. We somehow need to take that and make that relevant. And that's nonsense. God's Word is always relevant because sin is always present. It's always applicable. It may change in illustrations. I might not use an illustration that Spurgeon did about a man who was in a horse carriage and on his way to get water. I mean, we don't, what, what's that all about? We change illustrations. We change applications. Even the example of this story of Jesus about a farmer sowing seed. There's probably a handful of you, if that, that even can relate to what's going on there. But Jesus gave this example because that agricultural uh, living and lifestyle and, and way that they earned their living and grew their food was very much a part of life. So the soil is what is at issue. And the soil represents the condition of the human soul, the condition of the human heart, the mind. The problem isn't the seed. The problem is the soils, the dirt, the hard the hardened heart, the condition of the heart. So everyone who hears the gospel, the gospel is pure. Everyone who hears the gospel hears it the same way. In the sense that the gospel of grace isn't the issue. It's how it is received. Some revile it. Some reject it. And some receive it. The soil is what Jesus wants to teach us in this parable this morning. And this morning, I want you to look with me at, in looking at these and unpacking these, at four kinds of people, four kinds of people that are illustrated in these four examples of the soil, the ground here, okay? So just remember what a parable is. It's an earthly, practical, common story teaching us some spiritual truth, right? All right. Let's look first of all at the indifferent person, the indifferent person. Remember Jesus in the first scripture that we read, he gives the story, but then in the latter part, he explains it. So this is the seed that fell along the path, and the birds came and did what? They ate it up. They devoured it. And verse 15, Jesus explains what he means by that. And verse 15 reads, And these, in other words, the seed that is sown or thrown along the path, these represent or are the ones along the path where the word is tossed, where the word is sown, 
These are people who hear the word, hear the gospel, whatever phrase that you want to put in there, but it's the word of the Lord. They hear it, and Jesus explains in verse 15, not birds, but he says Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown or tossed along their path. Now, remember, again, he's giving examples from a very agricultural type world. And so in between these fields where various things were grown, there was, there was hardened paths that people would run, walk and travel and animals. And so just like in your, maybe your yard or somewhere, there's a certain path. And over time, the ground just gets really hard. You're not growing flowers and tulips or whatever it is that you grow. The ground is really hard in there. And so you can put seed there, but it's going to never get into the soil to germinate and grow and have life. Jesus said there are those that are just indifferent. Their heart and their mind is so hardened that it never even gets just a little bit into the ground. It never penetrates the soil because they're just indifferent. They have just so determined that they're going to reject the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They're, they're like those in Romans chapter 1 that said that even though they know the truth, that they're without excuse, they suppress the truth. They're just, not in, they're just not into it. They're indifferent. And Jesus said that's like people whose hearts that are so hardened that even though they're exposed to the gospel, it never, it never gives life. Jesus said that Satan, immediately, maybe even today, some of you are hearing it, but as soon as you leave, you're going to no more remember anything that's said than when you came in. Because your heart is hardened because of sin, or maybe, again, you just have rejected the entreaties of the Spirit and are not a, a follower of Christ. How does Satan steal the Word? Well, he distracts people. From an opportunity to hear the gospel. He's maybe distracting you. Your mind and heart is just distracted with so many things. Did I turn the coffee pot off? Did I bring the dogs in? Or what am I going to eat? Is he going to be done that we can get to Golden Corral before the Lutherans? Whatever. You're just distracted. What are they going to do with that platform? Are they going to do this or whatever? Where did he buy that shirt? I don't like that shirt. I mean, whatever. You're just, you're just not hearing. And it's like the seed is just being tossed on the ground. There's no penetration into the heart. He stirs up hostility and suspicion concerning the competency or integrity of maybe the person who is sharing the gospel. Maybe me. Who, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He stirs up a non-Christian to distort what is being said into something that the speaker never intended. Well, if I was there, I don't agree with that. You shouldn't believe. Nobody believes that. And they just stir the heart because that's what Satan does. They stir up their mind. He, he stirs up the minds to draw false conclusions and implications from the gospel that have nothing to do with anything that 
the Word of God teaches. Satan may incline this person's mind to link the Christian with people who've disgraced Christianity in the past that gives him or her an excuse to just reject it out of hand, guilt by association. He might put uh, in their minds all sorts of questions and convinces them that if they can't get completely satisfying answers, then Christianity must not be true. He might even stir up feelings of hopelessness where you become so despondent that Jesus can't really help me. Jesus can't really do anything for me. My life is a lost cause. Satan wants to steal the word. And so what does Jesus say that he's doing now? It says when, he, when the word is sown, when the word is given out, Satan immediately snatches it away. This person is indifferent, hard in heart, closed mind. But notice secondly, another type of soil that illustrates the human heart and the receptivity of the word is the impulsive person. Not the indifferent person, but the impulsive person. Jesus said in verses 5 and 6 and talked about how the seed, the gospel was sown on rocky ground or hardened ground. And look at the explanation in verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, And these, the seed that was sown on rocky ground, these are the ones that the seed is sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, it gets in just a little bit. They hear it. They initially receive it with joy. But verse 17 says, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulations or persecution arises because, arises on account of the seed or the word, immediately, Jesus said, they fall away. The New Living Translation reads this way that is helpful. Same, same 16 and 17, but from the New Living Translation. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message, immediately receive it with, with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's Word. That's a second type of of person who hears the word. This is rocky soil, stony places. It's a, it's a mixture of, of just, you know, the, the dirt and the soil with rocks and whatever in that setting that the seed falls to the ground and it just gets right below the surface. And it immediately kind of has some life to it. I'm talking about the natural here. And as soon as the sun comes out and the weather or whatever... Because it has no root system, what happens? It just dies away. Jesus said there are folks that, that are like that. There is a, um, there's an impulsiveness in the way that they have responded. They uh, maybe just have finally got to the place that on the eighth time of just as I am, 
They're going to respond. All right, if they sing that hymn one more time, I'll go forward. And they're just so drawn. Maybe the, the evangelist is out there and says, I know that there's 12 people here and 10 respond. But I'm not letting anybody leave until those other two lock the doors. We're going to sing. Because I know that. And finally, just come forward. But there's not. There's a, there, my point is, they're responding. Again, I'm not saying God never uses that. Of course he does. But the impulsiveness is that they're responding and just kind of, you know, that's what I need. I, I, I need. I need... I need this religion. I need Christianity. And they just, they just kind of jump all in. They come and for about a few weeks or maybe whatever time, and they just seem to be all there. But something begins to take place. People begin to mock them. Family begins to think they're nuts. And they think, well, yeah, this isn't really what I bargained for. I think of a young man who came in the past over earlier this year and he had received Christ and at least for a few days had very great excitement and was and came and, and as we tried to disciple him and I remember me and somebody else uh, met him at uh, Panera's and just tried to begin to build that relationship and encourage him and he just it just went off the radar tried to contact respond and all of a sudden nothing is going on and, and listening that where, where he was and this young man. And, and, and again, there's a point in which, again, I'm not going to go camp out at their house, but you, you do everything you can trying to build that rapport and that relationship. And I just could imagine that he realized that, you know what, boy, I didn't, I didn't have the quick fix like I thought this was going to bring me. They didn't realize that people would make fun of, of me being a follower of Jesus, a Jesus freak. You got religion. I'm going to try that for a while. The point is, there's that impulsiveness. There's that, there's that immediacy where they respond. And, and as, they, as they move along, they realize this, this, this Christianity isn't this... Uh, I didn't realize I would have so many troubles. And I didn't realize people would hate me or dislike me or reject me because I decided to give my quote-unquote life to Jesus. Because they had no depth to their profession. When trials, hardship, they fall away. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It isn't going out to Spencer's and buying a nice little cross to wear around your neck. Taking up your cross means I have committed myself to die. Because Jesus says there's death involved. There's death to self, there's death to my ways, my will. And we don't like that. We like the appeal of kind of a modern uh, TV evangelism Christianity that promises wealth and prosperity and happiness, but doesn't tell you the, the backside of the gospel that there will be hardship, there will be persecution, there will be a carrying your cross. Carrying your cross, a cross, we've got it on everybody, where's a cross? Tattoo a cross, where are the cross? Stickers with a cross. You do realize that the cross was an instrument of capital punishment and death. 
It would be as absurd in first-generation Christianity for Christians to be going around wearing crosses as it would be for us to wear little miniature symbols of an electric chair. That's how absurd the idea was. But Jesus specifically said, you must take up your cross. They knew what that entailed. You hear me quoted a lot, John chapter 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000. Wow, big, big turnout. We're going to feed them, and they had that miracle of the feeding, and I mean, a great turnout, and what did the folks want to do? They were really on board with Jesus. They wanted to make him king. They were excited. Man, this, this is great. And then around verse 60, Jesus began to talk about, maybe a little before, he begins to talk about what it means to be a follower of his. He uses phrases like, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. Remember when we taught that? He begins to talk about the demands that it, no one can come to the Father unless the Father, and the word literally is, drags him. He began to lay out what it really meant, not just a free lunch, literally. And the Bible says, I think it's verse 66, and from that moment on, Many had gone. Why? Seed was on shallow ground. I just could imagine when he's talking, they kind of do the back, back, back step revival. You know, the back step revival. You just, you just disappear. I got to be careful because there's a big pit down there, and that's what we want to fix. The indifferent person, the impulsive person. But notice thirdly, the inconvenient person. Three types of soils, ground, illustrating the heart. The inconvenient person. Verse 7, Jesus in the story said, Other seed fell among thorns. When the thorns grew up, it choked it, choked the seed and yielded No grain or fruit. Verse 18 and 19, Jesus, that's the natural story. And Jesus gives a spiritual application in verses 18 and 19. And he explains that. And others are the ones sown among thorns. Seed. They are those who hear the word. They hear it. Gets in. But, verse 19 says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, what, enter in like thorns. And what does it do? It chokes the word. And by doing that, it proves that that soil, or it proves that that person is unfruitful. The seed never germinated, never had life, because it was so filled, giving again the picture of soil and ground. There was so much weeds and stuff that hadn't been rooted out, or maybe they were rooted out on the surface, but you know, if you don't get the roots, guess what? They're coming back. And they're coming back with their friends next summer, right? I mean, they're coming back in force because you didn't get the roots 
pulled out. Jesus said there are those who, or they hear the word, gets in, starts to have some life, and just as it begins to have some spiritual life, they are so fixated and consumed about their life and their career. You see, earlier, if Satan can't steal the word with persecution, what's his next tool in his toolbox? Prosperity. He can't get you with tribulation. Guess what he'll do? He'll get you with false promises of prosperity, comfort, and well-being. Because the same effect will happen. Destroy and steal the word. The seed falls here. It doesn't give life, thorns, and weeds. The seed of the gospel cannot survive to produce fruit in a heart that is still filled with all these things. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, I'm your guy. I've obeyed all. Jesus said, have you obeyed the commandments? He said, I've obeyed them since I was a kid. I'm a, I mean, I've got gold stars in my Hebrew class on synagogue, uh, whatever. And Jesus said what? Go and do what? Sell all that you have. He just said he's obeyed all the commandments. And more than likely he's referring to the Ten Commandments. Seems to be the most obvious reading. He says, I've obeyed all the commandments. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have worship no other God before me. Right? Second one about don't worship idols. He's a jealous God. He just said, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus put his finger on his heart and says, you haven't even obeyed the first one. Because your wealth is an idol to you. Go and get rid of it. And then you can follow me. Was Jesus anti-money? Of course not. It's the love of money. It isn't. Having money, it's as long as money and wealth and those things don't have you. These are the thorns that gather around our life. What kind of promotion am I going to get when they start realizing that I'm a follower of Christ and I can't make those fake expense reports like I've been doing? I can't fudge the numbers on my receipts to get the maximum reimbursement back. Because if all of a sudden I start being honest, guess what? The rest of it's going to happen in the department. Thorns. Now someone may ask this person here, has such a person lost their salvation? And I would suggest this from my understanding. In this account we're talking about here. The words seem to grow, thorns, cares, choked it out, snuffed it out. Has such a person lost their salvation in that instance? My, my understanding is that I don't believe they ever had salvation to begin with. The word of God fell in a heart that was unprepared because it was full of malignant weeds. Remember what Jesus, after he Look back in Mark chapter 1. Look at 
Look at back in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus began his ministry, verse 14, after the baptism, after the wilderness encounter with the devil, verse 14, now after John, that's John the Baptist, or John the baptizer, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God, there's the present reality, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. You see, a person who refuses to repent, repentance isn't just being sad because your life has fallen on hard times. Repentance means that I am going to make a turn and reject the way I was going and I'm going to change and turn by God's grace and follow Christ. Repentance is a repudiation of what went on in the past in order to turn and follow and come after Christ. If that doesn't happen, there is no salvation. We've become so enamored with a false, easy believism type of gospel, we wouldn't know the real gospel if it slapped us in the face sometimes. Now, there are degrees. Some of you have repented and changed, and there was an immediacy. Some of it was a process. We're all still in process. I repented, but guess what? I'm still repenting. That's what sanctification and walking under the cross is all about. I'm not talking about you got to get your life together and then come to Jesus. If you think that, that is not what I'm saying. But if you want all the benefits of God, remember what it says in Romans chapter 3. It says there are none who seek after God. We read that and we think, well, wait a minute. I know a lot of people seeking after God. No, they're seeking the benefits that God will provide, but they're not seeking God. Because if they were seeking God, it means they must take themselves off the throne and submit to Jesus being on the throne. It means that I'm not taking Jesus as Savior as my get-out-of-hell ticket, but it's Jesus as Lord and Savior, Master and Savior. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. Money being an illustration of a thorn. Jesus said... Quoting, or rather, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul. Let me get it right. Let me try it again. How about the Apostle John? Sorry. If anyone loves the world, if anyone loves the world, 1 John 2.15, the love of the Father is not in them. Thorns. Thorns. Now, if you share the gospel in whatever way that is, and seek and desire as God and the Spirit provides those opportunities. Let me read you something I found encouraging, something that uh, John MacArthur wrote in the Gospel According to Jesus. He said, here's an important lesson for the sower and believers. We should be involved in sowing the Word in some form or fashion. He said, here's an important lesson For the sower or those who share the gospel, you will face resistance and hostility. 
There will be shallow, short-term converts. And you will encounter double-minded people who want Christ, but will not let go of the world. The hardness of the road, the shallowness of the soil, and the aggressiveness of the weeds will frustrate your efforts to sow a good crop, using that analogy. Nevertheless, he says, be encouraged. The Lord of the harvest can break up even the hardest ground and rid it of the most stubborn weeds. Hard soil, shallow soil, weedy soil may not always stay that way. God can till the soil of the most stubborn heart. You know how I know that? Because he did that with me. And he probably did it with some of you. The indifferent person, the impulsive person, the inconvenient person. Just want to add Jesus to my stuff, but really don't want him taking center place. And last is the invested person. Verse 8, Jesus said, these are seeds that fell onto good soil. That's the natural. And the spiritual application is verse 20. Look at your Bibles. But those that were sown on the good soil, say good soil, good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And that's not just a mental, oh, I believe in Jesus like I believe in George Washington. No, they accept it. They accept the word. They follow, they repent, and they believe. They trust. They hear the word and accept it. And it says that those where that seed falls on that good soil, they are the ones that bear fruit. Again, the illustration of the farmer. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It fell on good soil. You see, the ultimate test of authentic faith in Christ isn't being here today, being in church. You hear people, I just got to get in church. Got to get in church. Got to get in church, preacher. Well, that's probably a good place to hear truth, right? And at least in some churches. <laughs> Clarify that. No, you need Jesus in your life. You don't need to join a religious fraternity. You need Jesus in your life. He, he's the, that's what you need. You need him. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. In other words, you, you can't see the root system, but you'll, but you'll observe the evidence of a healthy tree by its fruit-bearing capabilities, Right? How many of you have ever had, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but you, you planted, experiment with something, and usually the first little fruit that began to grow wasn't so good. It took a little time. Anybody have that experience? Go ahead. Just help me here so I'm not the only idiot that can't grow anything. But over time, and you begin to grow something, and you're eating it, there's something really satisfying about that. We had that garden there in Illinois and had those, you know, it was just amazing. You just... You put seed in ground, water, maybe a little, you know, whatever, and wow, we got some really great tomatoes here. In fact, they were growing so much, it's like they got steroids in them. I mean, you didn't know what to do, and you got people wanting to, you know, giving them away. But there was something when you're eating it, you're thinking, that grew in our garden. It was good fruit. 
That's what Jesus said. There is good fruit of those who hear the gospel, respond to the gospel. But don't miss something in verse 20 and recognize that not all the ground, the good ground, not all the good ground is equally productive. How the progress and obedience in one person's life, don't judge yourself by that. Realize that there are degrees of fruitfulness. What does Jesus say? Those who hear the word and accept it bear fruit, and some 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Some bear quantities, 100-fold, and et cetera, et cetera. Not every Christian, speaking with me, I don't bear the fruit like I should or like I could potentially. And that usually, or not usually, always has to do with my willingness to obey and follow and apply the gospel in my life. Would you agree? But the point is, is that every genuine person with saving faith will bear fruit. It might be a little teeny, tiny little piece of fruit. But over time, we will see fruit in their life. The Bible says that one of the ways fruit is exemplified, Galatians 5, 22 through 25, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. John says, if you don't love your brother, you're not a believer. If you're a racist and you hate somebody because of the color of their skin, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. And don't give me the baloney. That's how you're raised. You are not a believer if you hate somebody because of the color of their skin. If you do not have the love of God, that's an evidence. That's a fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. If you're still mean as a snake, curse at your wife and your family, or your husband and your family, whatever may be the case, I'm going to tell you something. You need to judge yourself by the Word of God because you're not exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit. I don't care how long you've, quote-unquote, been a member of a church. I don't care how many times you've read the Bible. You are not exemplifying the fruitfulness, the evidence of a person whose life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Quit kidding yourself. And the good news is, is that can be changed right now. God, change my heart. Break up this rocky, thorny soil in my life and let the Word of God bear the life of the Spirit. Self-control against such, there, are no, there is no law. Jesus said in verse 9, To those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Same words he gave when he spoke to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. To those who have ears, let them hear. Do you have spiritual ears to hear the Holy Spirit saying, what kind of soil am I? What kind of heart am I? He doesn't care, as I said earlier, if you come to church. He just doesn't want you getting anything while you're here. 
He may convince you that scheduling a late event on Saturday night is not a big deal, so when you come in on Sunday morning, you're so exhausted and your mind and your attention span is so short, it's really not a big deal. Because what is his job or what does he want to do? He wants to take and make sure that the word is not being affected in your life. And if he can cause you to be distracted because you're so worn out, but I got to go to church. You're better off staying home, staying in bed, reading your Bible, maybe when you wake up at 11 or whatever. He may orchestrate a do- dozen different distractions during the course of the worship time. How about how Satan steals by provoking an argument between you and your spouse? usually sometimes on Sunday or right after about something, between you and one of your children. You think you're going to remember anything the Holy Spirit was trying to put into our hearts? He may convince you that I'm a complete doofus and not worth listening to. Well, that probably is true, but God's Word is worth listening to. God wants to change our lives and he's orchestrated the means of the word and the gospel and the spirit to affect change in our hearts to conform us convict us and convince us that his word and ways are true and right And that if we would give and live lives that are walking in obedience to what he has designed, that he has designed good things for us. Doesn't mean there's not going to be trouble, but God's way is always the best way. How do we counter Satan's strategy? Three quick thoughts. Cultivate the soil of your soul. If you're not spending regular time at some point daily with God you're going to have a hardened heart and if you're waiting for Sunday to come around to jump start you yeah I didn't like those songs didn't move me so I'm going to sit this one out yeah I'm not interested in that that message boy that, that really applied to me I miss the funny stories cultivate in being a worshiper before you walk through these doors So when you come here, you're ready to encounter God among His people. Devote yourself and being intentional about listening and reading the Word of God. And don't just listen to God's Word. Seek to have the Holy Spirit put His finger in those areas of your life that He wants to change. You see, Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 4, it's those who accept it. Accept it. Yes, that's the word for me. I need to do this. I need to change this. God is directing my life through the Word and the Holy Spirit. Remember what James says in James 1? says, do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. Don't just be hearers. Don't let the seed just hit the ground. 
but be doers of the word. Sure, let's sing this song that we sang earlier. Everybody stand to your feet. We're just going to sing this brief chorus. And it's the song that we sang, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And we sing that earlier more of the Holy Spirit, you're welcome here in this place. But I want us to, as we sing that again, let it be Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, here in me. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in my life. Let's sing that. There's nothing worth more that will ever Sweet. 